Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 17 of Unknown Orbits, Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. This episode is about Day of the Triffids, a novel that was initially published in 1951 and was serialized in Collier's Magazine, kind of similar to our Saturday Evening Post at the time. So it had a high level of visibility. It was very popular. Basically, the story of the Day of the Triffids is a scientist is working with triffids, which are seven-foot-tall, venomous, and carnivorous plants that can walk. He is attacked and temporarily blinded by one, and while he's in the hospital, a meteor shower blinds everyone on Earth who sees the meteor shower. He wakes up in the hospital room, and his sight has returned, and the world has been turned upside down. Now, I think we talked in a previous show, a recent show, how both the TV show The Walking Dead and the movie 28 Days Later plagiarized this idea of waking up in a hospital and finding yourself in the middle of an apocalypse. The director of 28 Days Later admitted that. But at any rate, so our hero walks out into the world and it's the old one-eyed man in the land of the blind is king because he can see he has a tremendous advantage over the hordes of blind people wandering around London and finds some other survivors who can see and they band together to battle the hordes of the blind and they flee out to the country. And they find themselves in a farmhouse, surrounded eventually by triffids. This does sound a lot like 28 Days Later. Very much Danny Boyle, the director of that movie, totally stole this from Day of the Triffids. And by the way, it, it also sounds a lot like Night of the Living Dead. The survivors are surrounded in a farmhouse by living dead, or in this case, triffids. While they're surrounded, a government goon who's uh, w- would-be despot breaks in and tries to steal away the girl, Susan, but they manage to thwart this uh, bad guy and let all the Triffids in and they attack and overwhelm the bad guys and they escape. And the end of the book is they reunite with the group of scientists on the Isle of Wight, pledging to rebuild mankind. So that's the basic plot of the Day of the Triffids. As I said, it was a pretty successful book in its day. It was adapted in 1962 to a fairly decent movie, Day of the Triffids. Which I'm pretty sure I did see. Did you read the book, Day of the Triffids? I know you've read some John Wyndham, but did you read actually read Day of the Triffids? That was so long ago, I'm not sure. I could have. I do remember another one, which I... I the Kraken Awakes? I knew it as Out of the Deeps. Out of the and Deeps. And that one I loved. Yes. There's a collection that came out, I think in the 1960s or 1970s, called The Wyndham Omnibus which contains Day of the Triffids, The Kraken Wakes, which you said was out of... The Deeps. Out of the Deeps, and The Chrysalids. These are three of his very popular, best-selling science fiction novels. Uh, The Kraken Wakes is about a race of underwater aliens that suddenly erupt all around the world and come ashore and attack humanity. It's very much a War of the Worlds type story. 
only with undersea monsters and and machines. And it's it's very good read. I just actually reread that one recently. That's a lot of fun. Chrysalids, I don't really remember. That's an alien invasion story. I believe it's a like a human replacement type thing where they oh. come to Earth and re- replace human beings. He wrote The Midwitch Cuckoos, oh. which became Village of the Damned. That's funny you should mention that. Okay. Because we're going to get to that in a little bit. So the movie adaptation varies from the book in that they flee England altogether. The hero and Susan, and I think there's a scientist that comes with them. And they wind up going to France and to Spain, and they all along the way they're having these adventures and escaping from Triffids and the hordes of the blind and all kinds of other problems and obstacles. And at the end of the movie, they discover that simple seawater will destroy the Triffids, and mankind is saved. I did see that then. I remember that. Right. That was not in the book. So that's the movie. I thought that going outside of England and traveling through Europe was an improvement over the book because it gave them more interesting things to do than just sitting in a cottage for you know the last half of the book. And that brings up one of the points that have been made, especially by one Brian Aldis, who we've talked about before, who's kind of a grumpy old man, doesn't like certain things. Grumpy old academic. A grumpy old academic and writer. Um, he classified John Wyndham's work as cozy catastrophes. His dismissive terminology was meant to imply that the characters in his books are only minorly inconvenienced for the most part and get to live out the apocalypse in a tidy little cottage out in the country somewhere. There's some truth to that, but clearly, you know, the fact that several of his books have been adapted into movies and and actually the Day of the Triffids was adapted several times by the BBC, I do believe. Who made more money? He did. He was very best-selling. And to give a little bit of background to the success of John Wyndham, I don't know if a lot of Americans realize, but after World War II, Britain was devastated. They had been bombed. Their economy had been turned inside out. And there was a, a long period, the mid to late 40s, all of the 1950s, even into the 1960s, where England was pulling itself back to a flourishing economy. I believe the food rationing went on to the end of the 40s. Yes. You know, it stopped in the United States, but it went on for many years afterwards in Britain. It was really a tough time, kind of a gray, depressing era, stagnant economy, not having all of the material goods available. You know, they were losing their empire. And John Wyndham wrote stories that made people feel better about England and about themselves, that the old values still prevailed, you know, that despite our difficulties, the British spirit endured, and that touched a very popular nerve in England at the time. Well, I like the idea of the cozy catastrophe. I don't think that's an insult at all. I wouldn't mind writing one someday. That would be kind of interesting, where, you know, the worst parts of some sort of disaster happened far away from the heroes and heroines. You could almost write it as a comedy, if you think about it. Oh, dear, we're all out of tinned beef. I guess we're going to have to slaughter a chicken or two. Having all these 
privations, which really aren't all that bad. And then meanwhile, they're watching reports of mass starvation and rioting and terrible catastrophes happening all around the globe. Or I could write an entire novel solely on the survival shelter, how it's constructed, what it has in it, and have the hero standing there at the big bay window with a drink in his hand, watching the world crumbling around him perfectly safe. Yes. You know what? I like that idea. I'm going to file that away for future reference. Doing sort of a semi-comedic take on the end of the world from a nice cozy location somewhere. I have your conflict. But Okay. So you have the whole situation and then they discover that they're missing the last season of some TV show on DVD. So that's their mission to go out into the world <laughs> and locate that that yeah, DVD set. That's That's a good idea. It's like, I'd have to know how this ends. You know, they're displacing the paranoia and the fear that they have that they suppressed in their cozy little cottage about the world ending. And it's it comes out in this obsessive need to finish up the last season of this TV show. That's a great idea. That would be a great idea for the BBC. I tried writing the story. It's similar. It was the end of the world and a collector was waiting for a package to complete his collection. And the whole story is him trying to figure out what's going on, where it is, and eventually finding the mail truck on a highway, uh, you know, looted out, and he finds his package and he opens it up, and there's the item that completes his collection. And then he takes out a gun and shoots himself in the head. <laughs> That's a great story. Did you ever finish that? No. Finish it. That's a great story. I love that. I'll make a note. You know, think of all of the opportunities you have to do like a travelogue story where he's wandering through this ruined landscape surrounded by zombies or whatever the catastrophe is, and his mind is gone, and he's kind of blind to what's happening around him. So he's just kind of like wandering through this ruined landscape clueless, and all these weird and terrible things are happening, and he doesn't seem to bother him. And the one thing that really does bother him is he finally completes his mission, and as you said, bang. I love that. That's Finish that story. The ending's a little hard to sell without it seeming pat, but the way you describe the landscape, you're giving me an idea. What you would be doing is implying that he had suppressed, you know, reacting to this horror all around him, including right. what, at the beginning of the story where he's in his cozy little location, wherever that is, and he's got his collection all around him, and he seems oblivious, but... The end of the story reveals he was consciously oblivious, but unconsciously this was unhinging his mind. If you show a terrible enough landscape around him where you make it clear, yeah, there's no happy ending here for anybody, he gets to the end and killing himself makes sense then. Yeah, yeah. I would lean it that he wasn't consciously, that he was unconsciously oblivious to the world. And when his collection's complete, that's when he really opens his eyes, looks around and see there's no hope. Yeah. That's the way you play it, I think. So that's a great idea. So in preparing for this podcast and, th and thinking about the movie Day of the Triffids and how much I enjoyed it and how British it was, I thought of some other favorite low-budget science fiction movies, British science fiction movies of the 1950s and the 1960s that I have enjoyed over the years. I have a special fondness, and I think the Brits on a low-budget basis, we're making really good science fiction movies from the mid-1950s to the mid-1960s, like a 10-year period where in America we were making low-budget science fiction movies, and most of them were just terrible. They were just garbage that was just churned out in a short period of time to fill a slot at a drive-in movie. 
you can go back and some of them are okay, but most of them are just really terrible movies. Not so with the British. They took their movie making serious. So let's do a little survey of low-budget British science fiction movies of the 1950s and 1960s. Okay, I'm going to write a title down because I know it's on the list. Uh, if I may have missed one or two, but I think I got a pretty good list here. My favorite one. Okay. The very first one was based on a series, a very popular BBC radio show, and it's called The Quatermass Experiment. And you see what I wrote down? 20 Million Years to Earth. An absolute favorite. I love that movie, too. That was part of this series, the Quatermass series, which began as a radio show. Very popular, very successful. And a little studio called Hammer Films was the one that got the rights to adapt it. Prior to the mid-1950s, Hammer Films was definitely a low-budget movie studio. They made primarily comedies, crime movies, melodramas. They were they were like an American low-budget studio like Columbia or Monogram. They were primarily meant for British consumption. They did not export many of their movies overseas. There was a law, I believe, at the time that required a certain number of movies exhibited in England had to be made in England, which is where you get uh, American producers coming over and making movies in England that would be able to be sold in England and in the United States. But Hammer was uh, 100% English. They'd been around since the 1930s. Their first move into science fiction and then later horror was the Quatermass Experiment in 1955. That's the one where an astronaut goes up into space, comes down, he's infected with some strange alien virus, and gradually mutates into a giant blob monster. It sounds silly, but it is actually a pretty darn good movie. The thing about the Hammer movies, and pretty much all the movies on this list, is that they were competently made by good directors. They had enough of a budget Sometimes the special effects were not all that great. The blob monster at the end of the Quatermass experiment was not very overwhelming in terms of its believability, but they were very serious in the tone of their movies. They had very good actors. In the case of the Quatermass experiment, they brought in Brian Donlevy from America to star as Dr. Quatermass. Which I, I do not like him in that. No, he's not the best Quatermass, but he's capable of being who Quatermass was. Quatermass was kind of an asshole scientist. That's why I don't like him. And Brian Donlevy convincingly plays assholes very well. <laughs> so he was competent in the part, and he was a well-known actor, and he had been in many Hollywood movies. And, you know, so there was a certain amount of marquee value in having him there. And this was the beginning of Hammer exporting their movies outside of England. There was a clear market in America for science fiction movies, and then later horror. It led to... Not only a sequel in 1957, Quatermass 2, which is sometimes known as The Creeping Unknown. That's a very interesting movie where aliens take over humans in a small town in England and are building uh, weapons and rocket ships at this military plant. And Quatermass has to go in there and defeat their plans. Not, in my opinion, not quite as much fun as the first movie. But again, very competently made. It was clearly superior to its American competition at the time. 
It's not as well known in the 1980s. They had a miniseries. I forget the name of it now. Yeah, and that wasn't bad. Well, I would I would lean towards bad. It was it was embarrassing. I would say. Well, I've watched a lot of 1980s BBC, and it all has the same cheap sort of light tone. Not very good quality. Let me give the plot of the 1980s series in two sentences, and you'll understand why I didn't like it. What's behind all these kids becoming hippies? It must be aliens. <laughs> it sounds terrible. You know what? I don't think I did see that then. I must have been thinking of something else. That does sound really terrible. So around the same time, oh, and we forgot the last, not the least, by any measure, Quatermass and the Pit from 1967, which was a color movie. These other ones were all in black and white. Fantastic movie. One of my favorite Hammer movies. I saw that movie on television way back in the day. Blew my mind. Oh, yeah. That's the one where they find a alien spaceship buried in the London tube. They initially think it's a bomb left over from World War II, but once they begin digging it out, strange things start to happen and strange phenomena start to happen. And these dead aliens, somehow their minds come back to life and begin possessing people. It's just a wild, terrific movie, really well acted. Very well structured. Yeah. I mean, just one of Hammer's very best movies. I'd put it very definitely in the top 10 of Hammer's films that they ever made. Just a terrific movie. Did not feel like a low-budget movie at all. Love that movie. Now, another one from that era, also by Hammer, was a movie called X the Unknown. This is another alien blob movie where there's a crack in the earth opens up and this strange blob-like substance escapes and begins menacing the countryside. That's a decent little movie, again in black and white. That's so familiar. Does X end up becoming a prehistoric monster that tears down Tower Bridge? Ah, uh, yeah, that sounds familiar. I don't know if it's a monster or just a giant blob. I think it's just a di giant blob that does eventually wind up in London. I'll, I'll have to check it out. It's been a long time since I've seen that one, but it's a nice little low-budget movie. And then, of course, in 1958, I believe it was, they switched to horror in color, Curse of Frankenstein, which was an enormous worldwide hit, and the rest is history as far as Hammer went. They pretty much abandoned a lot of their previous fare and focused mainly on horror from that point forward. I was going to say I, I had never seen it, but now I'm starting to wonder, was this, the, was this the version of Frankenstein which ends up on a ship in the Arctic? No, no. Okay. I think you're thinking of a much later production, which was not a British production, but was not Hammer. The one I'm thinking of is where Frankenstein ties a rope to a guy and yeah. hoists him up. That's Frankenstein, The Untold Story, which was a mini TV miniseries in the early 70s. It traumatized me That's as a, a little terrific. kid. I, I have not been able to get my hands on the full length version of it. There's a four hour cut of it out there. I think it's the full version is longer than that. It's like six hours. So I'm basically waiting until I get a version of that to rewatch it. It's terrific. But that's outside of our purview because it's past our cutoff date of 1966. But my, my apologies. No, it's no problem. It, it's <laughs> a great movie. I don't mind plugging it for people. But within our purview, I have a few more movies. There is another John Wyndham book that was adapted called The Midwitch Cuckoos. That was adapted into the very well-known, recognizable 
Village of the Damned, 1960. It's a really terrific movie. That's a classic. So many people have watched that and will remember it fondly. Those those little blonde-haired kids with their creepy eyes. And it's a terrific idea for a story. It starts out where everybody in this small village goes unconscious for several hours. It's really clever how everybody's passed out all around the town and on the roads. And the army discovers that there's a circle that everybody inside that circle is unconscious. And if you cross into the circle, you pass out. So it's very clever how they they establish that in the movie. It's one of my favorite parts. But then everybody wakes up. They're examined by doctors, and there doesn't seem to be any after effects. Nobody can explain what happened. And then several months later, all the women in the village turn out to be pregnant, and they give birth to a bunch of these creepy little blonde-haired children who turn out to be... And I don't think the movie ever really explains it, that they're some sort of alien seed or... But they wind up joining together and having telepathic links and the ability to project their minds and kill people. And it becomes very clear that they're a real menace to not only the village, but Earth itself. And the father of one of the children winds up sacrificing himself to kill the children. Classic story. A lot of people are probably very familiar with that one. They may not be familiar with the sequel, Children of the Damned, which is another terrific little story. In this one, children like this, and they're not all blonde-haired in this one, from all around the world somehow find each other telepathically and come to London and gather together in another little group of these telepathic children. Of course, the government and the military freaks out, and they wind up being trapped in this church, and they're surrounded by the military. The military tries to kill them. They wind up killing a lot of the military. It's a really good movie because it has... A internal debate about can we even allow these kids to live? Should they be given a chance? It's just another really well-made little movie. So if you like the first one, I would highly recommend Children of the Damned. That it- Part of that, or maybe it was the sequel, reminds me of Children of the Atom. It's the 1950s. It was, oh. there's, a, there's a term for it when you have separate stories published separately that continue a larger arc and then bringing mm-hmm. them together as a novel. Like Canticle for Leibowitz. Okay. This is a novel from the 1950s? Yes, but it was three stories that were printed separately. And the first one is just killing me. I just can't remember. But basically, genius children have been born as a result of mutations. And they're all hiding their talents. And then there's one normal man who finds out about this and helps them to contact each other. That's going to sound familiar to the next movie I have on my list. You just triggered a memory for me. There was a 1950s American science fiction movie. I think it was called The Atomic Children or something like that, where there was this military base out in the desert. There's a bunch of scientists out at this base, and suddenly all their children, they're playing one day down by the water, and they go in this cave, and there's this weird blobby alien creature in there, and he begins talking to them, kind of gets them brainwashed a little bit, and you know, and then their parents find out about it. And I don't remember exactly how it ends, but I just have that memory of this blobby creature talking to these children and getting them to help him with whatever evil plot he was working on. And that was not a bad little movie. So anyway. In the line of the evil children, there was another movie called These Are the Damned, or it was also called The Damned. Now, the 
Village of the Dam and Children of the Dam were not Hammer movies. They were made by MGM, I believe. These Are the Damned was a Hammer movie in 1963. My theory is, even though it was based on a novel that was completely separate from The Midwich Cuckoos, I think this was Hammer doing what Hammer did at the time, which was rip off any successful horror movie or science fiction movie idea. So they made their own version of it, and it's a really good movie. It's very strange. It's a strange movie. So again, we have a small village on the seaside that there's a hidden military base where these children that have been irradiated so that they would be able to survive an atomic attack. Oh, purposely. Purposely irradiated to survive an atomic attack, and they're kept prisoner at this military base, but it's not like a prison. It's like they go to school every day, and they have a teacher. We like to call that protective custody now. Yeah, but it's a benign form of a prison. But if they touch anyone, they kill them. They're irradiated, so they're fatal to the touch. So this character, and I don't remember if he's a reporter or whatever he is, stumbles across this and works to try to free the children. And in the middle of all of that, which is good enough as it is, in this town, there's a biker gang. Oh, why not? Led by Oliver Reed (laughs) in his prime. It's a leather-clad biker gang, but Oliver Reed goes around wearing this nice white suit all the time. But he's a total thug. And if you love Oliver Reed, and I do, I love everything he's ever been in, it's classic Oliver Reed. So half the movie is he's trying to beat up and go after the main protagonist. And then there's this woman he tries to rape and and she's involved in the whole thing. Are you sure he was cast in the movie and didn't just kind of show up by accident? (laughs) It's the sort of thing that Oliver Reed might have done in real life. But it's a really weird but very compelling movie. It's, It's clear that this is pretty awful thing the government is doing. So the guy does finally wind up rescuing the children and, and they try to get away, but it ends on a bleak note. So these are the damned, highly recommended. And if you like The Village of the Damned, it's kind of in that same vein, not by accident, thanks to Hammer. You know, I'm getting the impression we could do an entire episode on evil or controlled children. We have to do a little literary research. I'm sure there's a couple of books or short stories out there that have got evil children in them. It's got to be like some kind of base fear of humanity. Well, a lot of academics and critics have pointed to The Exorcist as a parental paranoia movie, a parental stress movie, where you view your children as not just hard to deal with, but (laughs) possessed by a demon. There's a whole subgenre of movies after the huge success of The Exorcist, and we're going out of our purview again, but it spawned a whole bunch of evil children movie. The Omen was oh, spawned the third by that. one. The third one. Wait, what am I thinking of? The Omen will... No. Oh, the child was in the first one, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Evil children was definitely a thing. So if we can find some literary uh, antecedents, I'd love to do a show on evil children. Although my both my kids are wonderful. So I have two more movies on my list. I don't know if I've overlooked anything, but here's two more. Another one by Hammer was called The Earth Dies Screaming, which is one of those wild hammer titles i know i've seen it but obviously well, i can't it sound remember familiar it? once again isolated english village and these aliens are coming in and taking over people's minds but they also have these clunky looking robots going around zapping people 
And it's a lot like some of these other movies we've talked about where, you know, the isolated protagonist in a small town with uh, evil abounding and they have to find some way to defeat the enemy. It is not a great movie. It's one of Hammer's lowest budget movies. And it's in black and white at a time when they were making a lot of color movies. But it is directed by Terrence Fisher, who is the same man who directed all those Dracula movies, all those Frankenstein movies, Curse of the Werewolf, The Gorgon, all these great Hammer classics. Again, well-acted, competently directed, competently produced. The low budget shows a, a little bit in this one, but it, it's uh, almost worth watching. I'm starting to think the quiet English village itself is a low budget feature. Of course, if you're going to make a successful low-budget movie, what's rule number one? Put your characters in a limited space so you don't have to have elaborate sets. Those Hammer horror movies, those gothic horror movies, they were all filmed on the same sets. They had standing sets that they just repurposed for each movie. They'd move things around and shoot from a different angle. But The Earth Dies Screaming, as the title might suggest, is not one of Hammer's greatest efforts and is really one of the few Hammer movies that I can think of that look like a low-budget movie. The final one that I have on my list is one that I just watched last night. I'd seen it before, but I wanted to re-watch it for the show because I hadn't seen it in a while. The Day the Earth Caught Fire. I am stuck between saying I love it. Okay, I, I like it. It's a great movie. There's been several on this movies on this list that are really terrific movies, and this is one of them. It's basically about Americans and the Russians blow off gigantic hydrogen bombs at the same time, and it causes the Earth to tilt on its axis and begin spinning in towards the sun. The first half of the movie, you have all these floods and hurricanes and earthquakes and all these natural disasters happening everywhere. And then the last half of the movie is the Earth is slowly cooking and getting hotter and hotter. And it's told from the viewpoint of a newspaper. So it's set in this newspaper office, and the main character is a reporter. He's kind of a guy with a checkered past, and he's got a drinking problem. And But early on, he meets a woman yep. who kind of is straightening him out. I can now say I liked that movie. I was getting it a little bit mixed up with Crack in the World. Yeah, it's very similar to a movie that came out around the same time called Crack in the World. But this is a better movie than that, because it's got fantastic dialogue. Dana Andrews. No, that's in The Crack in the World. In this movie, the only actor that recognizable to me is Leo McKern, who is a wonderful actor. Who, editor? No, he's like the science writer on the staff. He's a great British character actor. But otherwise, it's not a very distinguished cast. The female lead interest in the movie is, I'm trying to, I don't remember her name. I want to say Joanne Craig. If any of you watched the Swiss Family Robinson from Disney when you were a kid... She was the teenage love interest of Dano in Hawaii Five-0. Who, who's that? Oh, uh, don't ask me. Yeah. So she was, she was the cute teenage love interest in that show. There are a lot of young guys like me who, you know, were like, hmm, I'd like to have a girlfriend like that when I get older. And she's naked in this movie. It's from 1962, I think. Wait, wait, wait. I don't remember a nude scene. It's the most discreet nudity. You. It's 1961. They find all kinds of excuses for her to be naked, but covered up. So, like, she's in the bathtub several times. I do remember they went swimming. Yeah, and she, well, she was wearing a nice bathing suit at one point, but she, for whatever reason, sleeps in the nude 
So at one point, the phone rings and the hero is sleeping in the bathroom in the bathtub and he gets up and walks in. She's laying under the covers nude for some reason. But anyway, I'm just saying I really like that actress and that was a nice movie if you were in love with that actress when you were 12 years old. But at any rate, so of course, they have to try to save the world and that's the plot of the movie. The original British version left the ending ambiguous, but the American version of it added church bells at the end to kind of signify that it was a happy ending. But it's a really terrific movie. I mean, the dialogue is sharp and rapid fire. Again, well acted, well made. And what have we talked about? All these movies set in one place for the most part. Half the movie takes place either in this newsroom or the pub across the street. And there's just a couple of scenes where they go to like a park or something elsewhere. Or they go to her apartment. Which, if I recall, they kind of disguise with, uh, there's like a worldwide fog. Yeah, yeah. Which also lowers the budget. Right, right. Of all the movies on this list, this is one of the best. The Day the Earth Caught Fire. I've been in love with all of these movies for the longest time because I'm kind of a fan of Hammer. I'm a fan of British movies in general. And these are a whole bunch of little gems that I think our audience would really like. Two of the movies on our list, taken from novels written by John Wyndham, Master of the Cozy Catastrophe. And as we've pointed out in discussing these movies, they all take place in these nice little English villages. So I guess most of these are cozy catastrophes. So I have a question going way back to the beginning. I'm not sure which versions I'm remembering. So I'm going to ask, in the novel... Where did triffids come from and why were they being cultivated? There was something about the Russians might have made them. They were definitely not alien spores like they were in the movie. So in the movie, they come to Earth when the meteors fall as alien spores, which to me makes more sense than the book, which is like, hey, we got these murderous seven foot tall walking plants that we're just going to put in a pen and investigate. That seems like a bad idea to me, but yeah, that's the book. I remember in either the movie or the later series, they were cultivated because they grew sacks of oil. Oh yeah. Now that you mention it, yes. That was in the book and might've been in the BBC series. Like you said, I don't have fond memories of the BBC series, but that was in the book. They came down as spores in the movie. And yeah, you're right that it's better. This is kind of a writing lesson. If you have two situations that are interacting, like this mysterious new plant and everyone going blind, it's better if you have the same cause for yes, both. exactly. That's a really good point. You know, because it, it's almost like the meteor shower in the book just happens. It just seems odd. You're allowed one coincidence, but not the big one. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I haven't read Day of the Triffids since my high school days, but I'd almost like to go back and reread the book to see if they explain some of this stuff that doesn't quite seem to make a lot of sense. Wyndham's a really good author, so I would believe that he probably did explain more of it. Well, today you got me wanting to reread Out of the Deeps, or Kraken. Kraken Awakes, I reread that a few years ago. It's terrific. It's War of the Worlds, but coming from the ocean. I'd love to see it made into a movie someday. So I, I guess that's it for the list. I can't think of any. I don't think, Steve, you can think of any that I missed from British science fiction movies of the 1950s and 60s. No, I can't think of anything else, despite that I used to have a near-complete collection of authentic science fiction from the UK. 
And that's definitely going to be a topic that we're going to go into in, a, in future podcasts. There was a whole different strain of science fiction developing independently over in Britain in the 1930s and 1940s. So we will definitely be coming back to that at some point in the future. But that's it for episode 17. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.